सुप्रभात एवरीवन वेलकम टू द फर्स्ट एपिसोड ऑफ द पॉडकास्ट ककॉफनी विथ मी योर होस्ट रेहान रंजन फर्स्टली ककॉफनी रेफर्स टू अ हार्श और डारिंग साउंड एंड आफ्टर ऑल वट इज इन वन दीज डेज those instagram real trend audios like the patli kamari habole which play non stop or those millions of ultrasonic waves which you don't detect but are deafening bats as we speak anyway i'm thinking a great start to this cacophony of mine would be by astronomical exploration there are multiple missions humanity has sent out over the past century but the one we're going to talk about and let's be honest the one most of you know about is the one and only james webb space telescope This episode will talk about interesting stuff including how to DIY your own web telescope and how exactly do we plan on finding aliens. Firstly, James Webb is an infrared telescope. The James Webb Space Telescope is the largest, most technically advanced telescope ever built and it aims to search how first galaxies evolved after the Big Bang. We all have seen the beautiful images it has taken so far, especially the Carina Nebula on Instagram, Twitter, or whatever social media you're following. But here's the question: Why the need for James Webb Space Telescope? Because like Hubble was already there, and it helped find so much stuff and so many beautiful sights, like the well-known Pillars of Creation of the Eagle Nebula and the Rose Made of Galaxies, which was an image captured of two interacting galaxies. and already is still working so why the need to go into infrared well the universe is expanding and are the and the wavelengths of the light reaching us is too high frequency gamma rays and x rays dimmed out to visible and infrared light hubble has been programmed primarily for visible and uv light and ir strength is well very less hence providing the opportunity for web Also, the Webb telescope has been designed specifically to have a huge view of the universe, around 15 times that of the Hubble. Now, let's talk about how to DIY your own James Webb telescope. Firstly, for the anatomy, you the materials you're required are for two sides. The cold side, you're going to need an iSIM, which is the main payload. It is responsible for spectroscopy of the image its four different infrared instruments capture. And the mirrors See the hexagonal golden things on there? Yeah, those are the two mirrors with the surface area of a telescope over 6 times bigger than that of the Hubble, coated with gold and beryllium to capture infrared light. On the hot side, which is the side facing the sun, you're going to need a multi-layer sun shield which is 5 layers of metalized plastics as thin as human hair to protect from harmful sun rays, obviously star trackers because I mean, how else are you going to track stars? a spacecraft bus which contains steering machinery an earth pointing antenna because well communication and a sto- solar powered array which comprises of solar panels required to generate electricity now the assembling of these is very easy firstly you're just going to need a 10 billion dollar budget write mountains worth of code and continue assembling the ingredients perfectly for the next 20 years It is like you know it is this procedure that kind of makes us appreciate how much work has been put into this. So, let's actually go into the differences between Hubble and Webb. Firstly, 
Webb's larger size and richer infrared views will allow it to go beyond Hubble's observations and peer back to around 13.5 billion years, witnessing the first stars and galaxies forming out of the darkness of the early universe. By comparing those images to the one galaxies we find today, we can kind of get a good idea into the working of the universe. Secondly, Webb orb orbits about 1 million miles away from home, around the second Lagrange point, so no disturbance, just chilling far away. Whereas, Hubble is so close to Earth, it, uh, it requires to deal with a particular kill zone in our magnetic field, called the South Atlantic Anomaly. The, what that anomaly does, it collects charged particles from the sun that can disrupt communications and cause problems with the electrical system. And Hubble passes through this approximately 10 times each day. So it's like 15% so like of the time it's just on its own, it's flying solo. Also, lastly, Webb's deeper infrared vision will cut through the dust and gas of massive clouds where stars and planetary systems form. You see, Hubble was already working fine, it was already capturing the visible light. But you see, a lot of dust in the nebulae and galaxy block a lot of the visible light, but infrared light passes through them very easily. Hence, Webb also specializes in that and allows it to study different exoplanet atmospheres and it can maybe find the building blocks of life somewhere else. Now, a lot of people ask this question, is Webb replacing Hubble? No! As NASA says, Webb often gets called the replacement for Hubble, but we prefer to call it a successor. Hubble will continue to work alongside Webb, probably lasting up till around 2040 and continue providing UV and visible light captures of the universe, with Webb providing the infrared ones, and they will together explore the universe and, you know, maybe find aliens. Now, let's move on to the second segment of this episode, which is... Finding Aliens. <laughs> Speaking of searching for aliens, you're not gonna just expect, or well, scientists are not gonna expect to find Hollywood type of aliens, you know, very smart, have the UFOs, taking over the world, targeting humanity, you know, E.T. stuff. <laughs> or not even like the men in black kind of stuff with like, the proper languages, communicating and everything. Though it would be pretty cool, but you're not gonna find that. Rather, you're kind of gonna expect small-scale stuff, you know? Like looking at piles of dust and wondering what kind of biochemicals are in these, and then further research on that. That is basically what scientists do when they're searching for life, through a process called biomapping. Biomapping is the search for traces of molecular biological structures, which help decide the relative time of existence of life. Now, Astrobiology 101. Now class, what kind of subjects are required in Astrobiology? Hmm? Hmm? No one? Well, kind of guessed that. <laughs> there are six main subjects which are required in Astrobiology, which are Microbiology, Geology, Astronomy, Chemistry, Ecology, and Engineering. Yes, PCM students are gonna get a shocker. <laughs> The main ingredients for life which a scientist are mainly looking for, for now, are water, energy, time, and some key elements including carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, and sulfur. There are loads of key research topics in astrobiology, including the main three being origin, early evolution, and distribution. 
These three are mainly focused upon because they help compare alien life's behavior with ours, which would help make correct presumptions about their time and their intelligence as well. And then again, the ET stuff, whether they're going to take over us or not. But <laughs> All right. Dr. Rachel Owens, an astrobiologist from NASA, says that the four key elements which give a great idea are firstly DNA. Finding DNA means life the life the sample is up up to 1 million years ago. Amino acids give the sample up to 10 million years ago. Proteins give a sample relative time date up to 100 million years ago. And lipids, the molecules of fat, give a lifespan up to 1.6 billion years ago. These signatures help give a relative sort of time as to like when life occurred. And finding these signatures would help decide whether the planet is is suitable enough to sustain life. Like, you know, the recent news that there are puddles of water found on Mars. Now, where are scientists exactly looking for life? Because obviously a lot of resources takes place into this and you can't just scour every single part of the universe, right? For example, we know that Venus has as like clouds of sulfuric acid, so we're not going to look there, right? So there are mainly four places within the solar system that we are mainly focused upon for looking for life, which are Mars, which because because of the liquid water again, which is more likely to have a earth like life form then europa jupiter's moons because it has oceans and mission juno focuses on that aside from these two the two moons of saturn are enceladus and titan enceladus for its icy land and liquid water and titan for its liquid methane both of these are most likely in the solar system to have a life form which is very different from earth's and mission cassini huygens focuses on this That was all about finding aliens inside the solar system. But what about outside the Oort cloud? Well, scientists use a formula known as Drake's Equation. No, not the Canadian rapper, an astronomer in 1961. In 1961, astronomer Frank Drake proposed a formula that multiplied seven parameters together to estimate n, which represented the total number of detectable civilizations we should expect within our galaxy at a given moment in time. The formula says, and I'm saying that, n equals to the average rate of star formation multiplied by the fraction of those stars with planets multiplied by the average number of planets potentially supporting life multiplied by the fraction that develops life at some point multiplied by the fraction that the life developed would be intelligent multiplied by the fraction releasing detectable signs into space like for example humans are multiplied by the length of time releasing detectable signals meaning i mean how long are those signals gonna last for these seven factors multiplied together give the value of n now Scientists already know the rate of star formation, but there's a lot of ambiguity in the rest of the factors. Like, obviously, we don't know how many fraction of planets are there which support life, let alone the rest of the stuff. When run through the simulations, N gave an insanely small value, which fuels the Fermi paradox. Now, a lot of you may have heard about the Fermi paradox, and I'm saying it again. In 1950s, Enrico Fermi, while searching for aliens, said his very popular quote, Where is everyone? Which made sense, because if there are so many stars in the universe, because there are 
thousands and millions of galaxies in the universe, each galaxy containing billions of stars, so why haven't we found any form of life yet? This paradox inevitably gives rise to the harsh truth that maybe we are the only form of life there is. Also, a lot of math and logic factors into the data used to calculate such values. A recent paper published by Anders Samberg in 2018 solved the popular Fermi paradox by accounting the uncertainty of intelligent life in the logarithm scale. Well, the logarithm scale, again, is used because of this. Okay, let's say I were to say that a number lies between 1 and 10. Another person, say person X, were to say that a number lies between 10 and 100. So you, a listener, would be more likely, would be 9 times more likely to believe person X as compared to me. Similarly, if a person Y said that a number lies between 100 and 1000, you would be 90 times more likely to believe person Y than me. So, to make these orders of magnitude more equal, scientists used a logarithmic scale and used that to run their simulations. Again, in Anders Sandberg paper, it was observed that there is a roughly 50% chance of finding life alone in the Milky Way, but almost no chance that it is a K3 type civilization. Now, again, delving into more stuff, again, meaning there is almost no chance of life to form which has the intelligence to fuel itself using the galaxy as a resource. Interrupting this podcast to quickly explain the card shift scale, the K1, K2, K3 that I mentioned. K1 refers to a civilization powerful or well intelligent enough to power itself using the energy of a home planet. Human humanity so far is roughly around a K0.73. A K2 type civilization is a civilization powerful, again, intelligent enough. Why am I saying powerful? It's intelligent enough to power itself using the energy of its home star, preferably by using a structure known as a Dyson sphere. K3 type civilizations are the civilizations powerful enough to utilize the energy of their whole galaxy. For example, I mean, imagine a sort of alien life being able to power itself using all of the energy of a Milky Way. Yeah, that would be a K3 type civilization. Eventually, you reach an K Omega type civilization, which is able to power itself through the energy of a whole universe and probably were the ones who created it. But then again, as obviously we're delving a little, okay, not a little, a lot into fiction here. So let's back out now and back to the podcast. The harsh reality of this whole thing is that we haven't found any life yet. Though humanity may continue searching for it, there is one truth to this whole quest. We are the only life forms we know. And right now, we're not exactly doing a commendable job with our home. We both know we <laughs> Yeah, we both know that Earth is facing some problems and it's due to humanity. Global warming, extinction of life. So, I mean, if we're gonna look for life outside of our home, we need to learn to be able to protect our home. Right. If you really think about it, be it the James Webb Space Telescope or astrobiology or crunching the numbers in Drake's equation, the Earth is where we should make our first stand. And if we really are the only beings in this universe, well, then we shoulder a responsibility on an astronomical scale. And with that interstellarish note, let's end the episode. 
thank you so so much for tuning into the first episode of this cacophony of mine be sure to follow and leave a like can you like podcast i don't know <laughs> be sure to follow though and follow on insta follow me on instagram i leave both of the links in the description and share with your friends and if you really want to go the extra mile please leave a five star review that means a lot so see you folks next time till then be harsh and jarring <laughs> dhanyawad <laughs>